Okay, so we've moved from the largest literary unit of the theme to the paragraphs, and I don't have anything to say except how I'm going to conclude that subject here about identifying paragraphs, except that you have to read the text and see when the thought shifts and where the thought moves and develops, because every paragraph is self-contained with an idea, and then it moves to the next idea, and it's your job to identify those paragraphs. Now, in our writing, when we would start a new paragraph, we would either indent or do a double space, let's say. So, but we mark off our paragraph thoughts in our writing. The Bible didn't do that. The translators, uh, the editors of our Bibles, have tried to do that for us. And uh, through the centuries, they've added different markers to help with paragraph division. I'm going to suggest to you that you have to ignore that. I'm going to suggest to you that the paragraph divisions in Scripture are not necessarily correct. I'm going to show you when they were brought in. I'm going to show you kind of why we have to ignore them. But So my first point is simply, simply this, and that is that uh, in your general instructions on identifying paragraphs, you have to uh, ignore chapter divisions. Where your Bibles have the big numbers to say this is the start of a new paragraph is not necessarily accurate. And in fact, uh, in many cases, they're misleading. And if you follow that, you're going to miss the connection that, that was intended by the author. And so I want you to uh, look in your Bibles, and I'm going to show you just two examples of this. I want to show you Hebrews chapter 5, for one. We get ourselves in trouble, not in Hebrews 5, but in Hebrews 6, when we follow the chapter break between 5 and 6. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 5.11. And in Hebrews 5.11, you're going to read this paragraph. We have much to say about this, and that's Melchizedek in the preceding verse in verse 10 speaking of Jesus as being designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He then says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, but still in, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the last paragraph of chapter 5 introduces this concept of immaturity and spiritual maturity. And the author of Hebrews wants to write to the people and say, I want to tell you more about Melchizedek, but you don't listen. The reason you don't listen is because you're immature. And, and solid food, the solid food of who Melchizedek is, you will not follow because you're not thinking as mature people. And so uh, I can't write to you about that just now. So then he writes 
from chapter uh, 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter uh, 6, verse 20. And if you look in chapter 7, verse 1, he actually says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So he broke off in 5.10 and said, or 5.11 and said, I want to write to you about this, but you're not listening. And then he scolds them, and then he comes back and writes about it because now he's got their attention. In the middle of that scolding, your Bible puts a chapter 6. The chapter 6 does not belong there. It belongs at, after verse 10 because that's the end of that thought, and then he starts scolding them you guys need to straighten up and you guys need to listen. And in fact, when he comes to chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And he's still on the subject of maturity when he gets in chapter 6. That is a bad chapter division and it doesn't belong there and shouldn't be there. Because you're going to say there's a new thought in chapter 6, and there isn't. The thought began in 5.11, and we're now following that scolding that goes all the way through chapter 6 until chapter 7, when he says, now that I have your attention, I can talk to you about Melchizedek again. So when you're looking for, for chapter breaks, and when you're looking for paragraphs, ignore the chapter breaks. Work hard at ignoring the chapter breaks. They're hard to ignore. But when you're doing study, you can do that. It's, it's not easy, but you want to do it. All right, let me show you another one. It's Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, this one also, to me, is exceedingly important. So if you, uh, if you look in Ephesians 1, that where it, as it leads into chapter 2, you will find that Paul is praying, and in chapter 1, he's praying for three things. And uh, we're going to look at those, and I'm going to show you the connection into chapter 2. So, if you look in verse 18, this is his prayer. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So this is Paul's prayer, and he lists three things. I want you to know the riches, uh, or, or the, the hope that he has called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power. And then he says this, for us who believe. So it's God's power for us. This is his prayer. I want you to know God's power towards you. He then goes on to say this in verse, uh, in the middle of verse 19, after that sentence, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So let's follow his logic. I want you to know the power of, of God on your behalf. It's kind of like the power that God showed when he raised Jesus from the dead. So he's now taking an example of the power that God is showing to you, and he's saying, look how God's power was displayed in Jesus. So he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, 
not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now notice, he has not talked to us at all about the power he exerted to us. He's only talked about how it shows up in Jesus. And yet the prayer is, I want you to see how God's power has been exerted on your behalf, and yet we took a diversion over to Jesus. But look how chapter 2 starts. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Jesus was dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were as dead as a doornail. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now notice that chapter 2 is actually the prayer that was started in chapter 1. He said, I want you to know the in, this, this uh, inexpressible power of God, this majestic power of God that he has exerted on your behalf. I want you to understand what God's power has done for you. He, he showed it to you in Christ when he took him from the dead, raised him from the dead, exalted him and seated him in the heavenly places and gave him a name above every name. And he did the same for you. And you need to know that power when he took you from being dead, made you alive, gave you grace, and in the future is going to bring it all to pass and bring it to its full con uh, consummation. The prayer doesn't get really expressed until chapter 2. But your editors put a big number 2 there, and when you read chapter 2, you don't tie it to his prayer because of that big number 2. But the big number two is misplaced. It does not belong there. The example of Jesus was just an example to show you what God's going to do for you. And Paul is saying you need to know what God's going to do for you. You already know what he did for Jesus. Now he's going to do it for you. And if you want to grab this message that I'm writing to this church in Ephesus, you need to understand the power that God exerted towards you when he gave you life, seated you in the heavenly realms with Jesus, and gave you this inexpressible, joyful future when you're going to share in his glory. And if you want to live like a Christian should live, you've got to kind of capture that prayer. All right. That's a chapter division. It's misplaced. Some chapter divisions are not misplaced. But if you go in reading assuming that every chapter division is a new thought, you're going to mistake your paragraphs and it's going to be harder to identify what's going on. So ignore chapter divisions. Just ignore them. You're better off if you ignore them. Okay, so needless to say, the next one is ignore verse divisions. Okay, so let me just show you that in the passage we were just in. And then I'll show you another one. So look in 119. 
And in 119, if you look at the sentence, there's a period in the middle of 119, and then the new sentence begins in the middle of that same verse. The, the verse numbers are not always accurately telling you when verses start and when they stop. And in fact, uh, in the King James Version that every church used when I was growing up, we, had, uh, we didn't have a period in the middle of verse 19. They would have left that out. But all the translators and interpreters since that time realized that was not right. There has, that's a new sentence right there. So they put the period there, but they can't change the verse numbers. Everybody knows the verse numbers, and you can't do that. So we now have a sentence that ends and another sentence that begins in the middle of verse 19. So obviously that verse number doesn't belong there, but it's there, and we really appreciate that it's there because I was able to say to you, go to look in verse 19, and you could all find it. So we're glad it's there. It's just that it's not helpful when you go to uh, ignore these verse divisions. You just got to ignore that stuff, right? So ignore chapter headings, ignore verse divisions. It will mislead you in finding paragraphs. You got you to gotta go thought by thought, not punctuation by punctuation in your Bibles. Right? That's all I'm telling you. The punctuation has to be ignored. The thoughts have to be followed, which you want to do anyway because you want God's thoughts. You don't care about his punctuation. So the same thing happens in the, in the first paragraph over in, in chapter 1. If you look in verse 4, you have the same concept. So in verse 4, you have a sentence. In the one verse, you have a sentence stop and a sentence start. And so it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love... And then verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. You know how I was raised? I was raised with no period after in his sight. The period came in love. Because of the verse number, they put the period after the prepositional phrase in love. And I could never figure it out. And it read like this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. And then the next verse starts with a capital H, and he predestined us for adoption to sonship. And it just never made sense. Because love and adoption as sonship needs to go together. Because he loved me, he made me his son. But in the old King James Version, it followed verse divisions. And we now know you have to discard them. So, so they're good to have. I'm not dissing chapter divisions, because I can tell you to go to Ephesians 2 and you can get there. I can tell you a verse and you can get there. We, we're glad they're there, but you have to ignore them. When you're doing your work of identifying paragraphs, just try to, just try to forget them. That's the best thing to do. And then sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And finally, uh, you ignore the chapter headings. So, uh, when you, I don't know if you can see my Bible, but if you, there's this big black bold stuff up here. That was not part of the original. Those are chapter headings that man has inserted. And a lot of times they're helpful, but a lot of times they are absolutely flat out wrong. So go to James chapter 3. 
And now I know this has been changed in some of our Bibles, so I don't know which Bibles you might be using, but in James chapter 3, this is, I'm using an NIV, I don't know if it's a 84 or 2012 or whichever version it is, but I'm using an NIV Bible. And the heading and the beginning of James chapter 3 has the heading, Taming the Tongue. And when I was actually growing up, I heard, I heard this passage taught as the need to tame the tongue. And that sounds great. We all would say, yeah, I've got to tame my tongue. The problem with that and this heading is that if you were to read down through James 3.7, you'd come to verse 7 and it says this, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. What? The text, the biblical text, the inspired word of God says, you can't tame the tongue. It's untamable. But the heading in my Bible says taming the tongue. Someone wrote this without reading the text. And it's wrong. It's not a text on taming the tongue because you can't tame the tongue. So what do you do with an animal that's wild and will not be tamed? You either shoot it and put it down or what do you do with it? You put it in a cage and you control it. So that's his point. You can you control a horse with a bridle. You control a ship with a rudder. But sometimes the tongue is a forest fire. And forest fires burn out of control. You're never going to tame your tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And you will never tame it. Therefore, you must control it every single day of your life because it's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And it just shows up. It just shows up out of the blue. And you're going, I can't believe I just said that. So there's days when you're at home and you're just going along your merry way Mom or dad says X and you go, what? You forgot to control your tongue and it's a restless evil and that fast, you who are supposed to be in submission to your parents were fighting with them and we all know that's wrong. It just happens. So as I look back, I'm 67 years old as I've told you and as I look back in my life, I, I could not tell you how many relationships I have utterly ruined because I didn't control my tongue. And that wasn't a priority of mine for many years. But uh, So I would say the wrong thing. And I would just say the wrong thing constantly. And relationships fell by the wayside. And people became less important to me than other things. And uh, well, why? Because my tongue was out of control. And it's untamable. 
And all I'm saying to you in this particular setting is when you're looking for paragraphs, you've got to ignore these things. When you're looking for topic sentences, you've got to ignore this. Don't follow chapter divisions. Don't follow verse divisions. Follow thought divisions. And if you're following thought divisions, you're never going to read James 3 as, I need to tame my tongue. It's untamable. You can't tame it. Don't even try. But put it in a cage. Lock it up. Don't let it out. Because as soon as you let it out, you're done. So you have to ignore that stuff. Right? That's all. Ignore those things and you will be better off in the long run. So I want to show you this because this is important and it's, it's kind of supportive to my arguments here. So in the year, uh, in the 12th century, which is the 1100s sometimes, so the Bible was written in the first century. A thousand years later, thousand years later, this is what happened. Stephen Langdon, in the 12th century, added what we use today as the chapter divisions. He did this into the Latin Vulgate. That's one of the earliest manuscripts we have. I believe that's in the Vatican. I'm not positive if that's the one, but I think that's of the Vatican. The tradition is that these divisions were later transferred to the Hebrew Bible. So he added them in 1100, and they were added to the Hebrew Bible. In other words, they were never in the Hebrew Bible. The chapter of divisions weren't there. A man has come and added them, and as a result of adding them, we can now find locations, but they were not part of the original, so don't think they're part of the original. This didn't come in until 1100. It's closer to you than to the time that it was written. From manuscripts dating back to the 4th century, however, some form of chapter divisions were used. So in the 300s B.C., people were starting to say, it would be helpful if I could have someone go to Ephesians 3. So I'm going to use a chapter division of some kind, but it wasn't uniform until 1100 in the 1100s. So the same thing happens with verses. And I got this off of Bible.org. You can pull it up and you'll see it. In 1551, Robert Estienne, or Stephanus, added verse divisions to his fourth edition of the Greek New Testament. In 1551. Now, this is why I'm telling you to ignore him. He added them while en route between Paris and Lyon, France. Now, how did they travel back in 1551? How did, how did they get around? Did they drive cars? They fly airplanes? No, they rode, they rode horses, right? Or possibly carriages. Or possibly walked. Right? You with me? So the rumor is, and this is the statement, he added the verse divisions, riding a horse between Paris and Lyon. And have you ever ridden a horse? And have you ever taken a pencil and tried to write on a piece of paper with a horse? <coughs> I want to put two over here. And that's the rumor. He did it while he was taking a trip. And he didn't get the verses right. So don't think the verses are right. No one thinks they're right. They're helpful. They're not there to tell you where breaks are. So just don't think that way. right? That's when they were added, 1551. The first translation to employ his versification was the Geneva translation of 1557. And the whole Bible was... Yeah, well, the first translation in the whole Bible was 1560. 
The Bible was written in the first century. Three groups of 500 years passed. Then these were done, and it's been 500 years since they've been there. Right? It's closer to you than the original. Those are not part of the original. Don't think they are. They're just helpful tools to get us where we're going. So, this, I think, is, is what you should take away from all this. You should be breaking down every book of the Bible into paragraphs. And you should be identifying how each individual paragraph relates to the theme and then moves the thought forward uh, to the next thought in the development of that theme. So it's never not worthwhile. It's always important to work in a book around paragraphs. It's just the way, the way it is. Now, if you were like me when I was your age, and I'm guessing many of you are, you just read verses. In fact, I grew up in Awana. You know what Awana does? We read and we memorize verses. We read verses, and then we memorize verses. And when I was your age, I could quote verses coming out of my ears. I didn't have a clue what any of them meant because I didn't know how they fit into thoughts of paragraphs. I had the idea of the gospel. I mean, I knew they were talking about Jesus dying, but I had no understanding of the paragraph. I just memorized an individual verse. It's helpful, but it's not as helpful as it could be if I understood the thought of the paragraph in which that verse is found and how that paragraph fits in the theme of the book. That's all I'm trying to suggest to you. Try to identify the thought movement, not verse divisions. Where do the thoughts shift? And what I can tell you for this conversation is they don't shift at chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians. That actually ties to the prayer and the thought moves through chapter 2 all the way up through, I think it's verse uh, 9 or 10. Okay, so that's your, your second step. Theme is the largest literary unit. Paragraphs is the next largest literary unit. And that's how you should work. Read the Bible, get the whole picture, start breaking it down in paragraphs. Now next week, when you, when you, as you're thinking through Colossians, if you choose to do the work, do it in that vein. And watch how those paragraphs develop and you will easily see the theme. It's there, it's all over the place. It will just start to come alive for you. And you're going to be able to go, man, it's all over the place. I can't believe I didn't notice this before. And, and you're going to be right if you read it enough when we talk about it next time. Okay, so after we're moving through big to little and we're reversing the order in which you learned how to write, you've got to remember you used words. Then you put them together in sentences. Then you put sentences together into paragraphs. We're coming from the other direction, and we're going theme, paragraph, and so what is the next smallest unit? It's the sentence. The next smallest unit is a sentence. And so as you're working your way through Scripture, you, you observe the theme, then you move down to the paragraph, and then you move down to the next smallest or the next largest unit, 
which is you now have to understand sentences. So now I'm going to give you an English lesson, an English composition lesson, and uh, if you were anything like me, this is where you would completely fall asleep. When I was in high school, I hated this, and lo and behold, here I am teaching it. But uh, this is the English class lessons I despised. I didn't feel any value to be found in them. Now I'm sitting there saying, man, I should have paid attention. Because I used the, the issues of sentences in my interpretation, my understanding of God's word, and I do it all day long. So you have to know how a sentence is constructed and the importance and role of different categories of, of the speech pattern. So a sentence consists of a subject and a predicate, uh, a subject and a verb. Uh, a subject does the action, the verb is the action. That's a, that's, a, that's a complete sentence. Johnny ran. It's a complete sentence. And you have a subject and you have a verb. But most sentences aren't that simple. Some in the Bible are, Jesus wept. Okay. Most verses of the Bible, most sentences in the Bible, are way more complex than that. And they start to use different uh, uh, figures of speech in the course of the development of the idea. So you have an object. In some sentences, you have an object. You have a subject who does the action. You have the action, and you have the action happening on something that's the object. So Johnny uh, ran on the football field. The, the, Johnny climbed the, the, the flagpole. The object is what Johnny climbed on. It's the action that happened somewhere else. Does this matter to us? When you're reading the Bible, it really matters to understand who does the acting and who gets acted upon. Ephesians chapter 1 and the catalog of blessings that we get in Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who does the acting? God. What did he do? He blessed. He blessed what object? Us. Blessing does not come from you. You're not the source of my blessings. My blessings in Christ do not come from the church. They do not come from the teacher. They come from Christ. And God in Christ has blessed me. And I've been acted upon. I'm an object in that story. I'm, not, I'm the actor in other stories in the Bible, right? Uh, I, I'm the one that has to do certain things in some of the practical portions of the book. But if you want to follow the practical portions of the book and do the right thing, you have to start by understanding that you've been acted upon by God. And you've got to have the object in this story right. God acted on me. And the blessing that I feel, the blessing that I sense, the blessing that I live in is because God God has done a marvelous work upon me. So you've you got to follow that type of thing in the sentences. 
and you have to kind of capture the, the language use of the author. So not only do you have um, uh, subjects and predicates and objects, you have adjectives, you have adverbs, they're modifiers. They, they, they modify certain thoughts. And, and as you're reading scripture, you have to pay attention to the modifiers because they're really important. They're really important. Uh, so watch this one. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Oh, how many blessings does Rich Peterson have after all? How many blessings does Billy Graham have? Well, if you compare me to Billy Graham, Billy Graham is way more blessings than me. Uh, Billy Graham is a big dog. Rich Peterson, he's, a, he's just a nothing. But uh, Alistair Begg, he, he, he should be blessed way beyond me. But how many blessings does Rich Peterson have? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You know how many blessings Rich Peterson has? Every single one there is. You want to know why? Because Rich Peterson has Jesus. And God blesses us. Not because of who we are, our popularity, how big of a church we pastor, uh, not because of our age, our experience, what we do in life. He blesses us because of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, you have every spiritual blessing there are. And if you want to know what those are, just read Ephesians 3 because he catalogs them. He lists them, and we're going to actually read that here in a minute. A modifier is exceedingly important. Do you want to know why? Because we feel insecure. We're insecure people. We look at ourselves and we see nothing but failure. We're screw-ups. And if I was in God's shoes, I'd look at Rich Peters and I would say, I wouldn't bless him with every spiritual blessing. He's a screw-up. But God doesn't look at Rich Peterson. He looks at Jesus. And because he looks at Jesus, I have every spiritual blessing there is. And there's not one I don't have. I have every blessing that Paul the Apostle had. Peter, the Apostle, Billy Graham, and Alistair Beck. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? A modifier changes your theology, and it affects you. And you have to look at that adverb or that adjective, and you have to pay attention to that word usage in that structure. You have to, you have to go, wow, that's significant. But it's not if you're not looking at the parts of speech. You're kind of glossing that over. But that's an adjective or an adverb modifying, uh, uh, modifying the, the content of that sentence. Now, uh, one of the other parts of speech is the uh, uh, prepositional phrase. Now, there's a saying on prepositional phrases that, uh, that you've been taught that I wasn't taught. I was taught that a prepositional phrase is everything the cat does. So he's under the bush, over the house, in the in the suitcase, wherever, everything the cat does. But there's a phrase that you use to identify uh, prepositional phrases that probably is a little more accurate than, 
than, than what I was. But it, it, it's, it's a prepositional phrase that kind of positions where all this action takes place. So God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I'm gonna, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And I am going to go ahead and just have you look at this. And as I work through this, as I read through this, I want you to notice prepositional phrases. I will try to emphasize them. But if you read Ephesians 1 without emphasizing prepositional phrases, you will mistake what Paul is saying. And you do not want to mistake what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. And so I'm just going to read 3 through 14. We're going to come back to this in the course of our study. But for now, uh, I only want you to notice the prepositional phrases. So again, if you want to uh, count in your mind how many times in Christ or in Him is used in these 14 verses, you will be surprised at the, how many times Paul is saying, where do you get all these blessings? Why do you have all these blessings? Why should you feel blessed? And it's never because God's looking at you. It's in Christ. If you have Christ, you have the blessings. And there's no, no question at all. And, and, and I can tell you that this is thematic. If you get this here, it's going to argue to the theme of Ephesians in a very direct way. And I'm probably going to do that when we come back to this passage here in a short while. So here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our redemption, our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I don't know how many you counted, and it doesn't really matter how many you counted, but if you were paying attention, you got a pretty high number of references to in Christ or in him. So the emphasis of the prepositional phrase in Ephesians 1 3 through 14, is very clearly telling you this is where your blessings come from. Make no mistake about it. Do not think that you are being blessed because you are a Protestant. Do not think that you are being blessed because you are a Roman Catholic. 
Do not think that you are being blessed because you were baptized. Do not think that you're being blessed because you happen to be obedient. Do not think that blessings come for any other reason. And if you have Jesus, you have them all. Because every blessing is found in Christ. That is significant. So, there was a time in the Corinthian church when uh, the wealthy slave owner would show up to communion service at, I don't know, 5 o'clock at night, let's say. And they would tell their slaves, uh, you finish milking the cows or whatever, you finish your chores, and you come when you can. And those poor Christian slaves would finish the toil of their day, stroll over to where the meeting is happening, where communion was being held, and they would find no food or drink to celebrate communion with the rest of Christian believers. Because the Corinthian church was actually looking at humanity, and, and they were concluding that the blessings of society were blessings that spilled over to the church. And if you're a slave in society, you don't have the blessings that we have in the church. We get the blessings. And they needed to read Ephesians 1. And in fact, Paul probably corrected them along those lines also. But the concept simply being that had they understood Christ correctly, they would have understood that if those slave workers had Jesus, they were on an equal standing as the wealthy believers. Now, you know, that's not all that far from how we view Christianity in America. You look at the Christian wealthy in your church and you go, boy, I wish I was blessed like them. <laughs> uh, through the years, I've been talking to Christians and Christians talk to me and, and they'll tell me about their life. And they'll, 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 they'll say, uh, you know, I've had a good job. God has blessed me. What? What about the people who don't have a good job? What about the poor people? What about the uneducated people? They're not blessed? Don't define your blessings in the wrong place. It will mis it cause you to mistake the body of Christ drastically so that you view Christians totally wrongly. I don't care how many coins jingle in your pocket. You have Jesus. You are a son of God. And he loves you with a love that endures forever. And it has nothing to do with your money. And blessing for the Christian is in Jesus. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ didn't have a home to go to. And he didn't have a bed to sleep in. And, and when the guy asked to follow him, Jesus said, I'm not going anywhere. I don't have a home to go to. You can't follow me anywhere. It's not following me from here to Omaha. If you're going to follow me, it's a spiritual conviction. And Jesus was blessed beyond measure. Don't evaluate blessing. Through the eyes of American Christianity, it's not a healthy place to be. 
your blessing comes in Christ. And if you have Jesus, you have every blessing. And that's what made the Corinthian distinctions so pathetic that they would think, because I have money, God's blessed me more. Because I have slaves, they're not as good as I am in Christ. Totally devastated their church. Totally devastated their church. Prepositional phrases. You have to follow prepositional phrases. They're all over the Bible. But in some passages, they just stand out. And you have to capture that. It's a, it's a part of speech. It's a part of a sentence. You've got subjects. You've got verbs. You've got objects. You've got uh, modifiers. You've got uh, prepositional phrases. You, the student, have to read through your English classes. Because the rules of your English lessons were not created by mankind. They were created by a communicating God who establishes the rules and we have just learned them to communicate correctly. And when he writes, he follows those rules because they're right. So when you read, don't ignore those rules. Your teachers are really teaching you correctly. And it matters how you respond to that to, to actually read the Bible. It honestly does. I hate to tell you this because I hated these lessons in high school. But it's true. They make you a better student if you know figures of speech or parts of speech. Okay, so there's one more, and that's a, a conjunction. Now, a conjunction connects uh, different parts of a sentence. So, I went to the store yesterday, but on the way I got a flat. And the conjunction is tying those two thoughts together and, and creating some kind of a connection or a division between them. So there's, there's conjunctions and then there's uh, uh, negative conjunctions, if you will. So there's things that, that connect thoughts together, therefore, but, but now. Um, all those are, are conjunctions. You're all aware of it. I'm just going to show you that you have to pay attention to it when you're reading Scripture. Because Paul is connecting thoughts, the biblical writers are connecting thoughts with conjunctions that they are putting together and they expect you to read it around that conjunction. Or they're putting contrastive conjunctions and they're saying these don't belong together and you can't put them together. All right, so turn in your Bibles to Romans. And I want to show this to you in the book of Romans. And I'd like you in Romans... You guys are awesome, by the way. We, we only have a couple more minutes, and you're hanging in there really well. So I want you to notice, uh, beginning in Romans 5 and verse 15, and we're just going to read through 19, and I want you to notice how many conjunctions Paul uses. Whether he's connecting them or separating them, you're going to see all the conjunctions. And just notice in this text the use of Paul's, of Paul's use of conjunctions to shape your understanding of theology. Okay. But the gift is not like the trespass. The gift you get from Jesus is not like the trespass you got from Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor, conjunction, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift 
followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, another conjunction. It's a, so how are we supposed to think about this? Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. You know what Paul is telling us? That you inherited something from Adam and you inherited something from Jesus. But they're not the same. What you inherited from Adam is sin and condemnation and judgment and death. Uh, but what you inherit from Jesus is much more than its opposites. It's much more. So when Jesus came into the world to correct what Adam gave you, he came in and didn't just bring you back to neutral. He didn't just fix the problem. He didn't just take away your sin, clean you up, take away your death, and, and uh, take away the negative judgment of God and say, okay, now I brought you back to zero. You've got to start adding things into your account. No, no, it's much more with Jesus Christ. He not only brings you back to zero, but much more. He gives you justification and life. And so he not only brings you back to neutral, he actually throws all these things into your account. And so, yes, there's a similarity between Adam and Jesus. And that is you, these things are imputed to you. They did something and you got affected by it. But the thing that Jesus did is far superior so that you're not in, in a place of neutrality with God. Your account is full because Jesus took all the negative deficit away. And then when he brought you back to neutral, he didn't stop there. He actually started pouring all these things into your account and uh, he caused you to be justified in the sight of God. Do you know what justification means? Justification means that all the negative is taken away and you've been given righteousness for time and eternity. That's a simplified definition, but it's perfect. Forevermore, we're justified because of Jesus. God will see me righteous through time and eternity. Romans 5, built on the construct of conjunctions. The Bible's full of conjunctions. Some of them draw contrasts. Some of them unite thoughts. You have to piece that together. You have to move through this process so that you see the parts of the speech and what the author's driving home. And now you're moving big to little. So if we're moving big to little, we're moving from theme, paragraph, sentences, and then words. And it's the smallest unit of, of speech. It's the smallest unit in any composition. It's the word that makes up the sentence, that makes up the paragraph, that makes up the subject. And, but you, as you're studying through this, are sitting here going, okay, uh, I have to go smaller and smaller, so how do these words get chosen? I'm just going to give you an example of this that I think is going to shock you. I think it's going to shock you. Because I never knew this was here until I first of all knew the theme of Ephesians. Once I identified the theme of Ephesians and I went back and read it, I, my mind exploded with this, with this truth. And it was like shocking to me that I had never seen it before. So I'd like you to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. 
And in Ephesians chapter 1, we get this catalog of blessing. But there's a word choice that is so significant to the theme that, honestly, it's almost essential for us to see it and identify it. So I'd like you to look in verse 3 at the pronoun that says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Us. Then I'd like you to look in verse 4. It says, for he chose us. I'd like you to look in verse 5, and it says, in love he predestined us. In verse 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom, verse 9, with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us. Now, for the sake of time, I want you to drop down to verse 11. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And the whole way through, up and through, up and through verse 12, it's all us. It's we, us. Watch what happens in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ. Why does Paul change his pronouns from the first 11 verses to the 12th verse and addresses you. Why is there a pronoun change from us to you? And who are the us and who are the you in the book of Ephesians? What's Paul developing? Well, it's exceedingly significant if you're going to understand Ephesians that Paul changes pronouns here. It's his word choice to develop his theme so that you understand what you have in Christ. And I can tell you this, you are not us. You are you. And when Paul was writing, he was saying, this is true of us. And when you believed in Jesus, it became true of you too. Now, just glance over to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to notice verse 14, and then I'm going to take you to the theme. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Who, who are the two groups that God made into one through Jesus Christ? Jews and Gentiles. I heard somebody say it. Jew and Gentile. Who's the us in chapter 1, and who's the you, Jew and Gentile? And God united two people in Jesus, two groups of people in Jesus Christ and made them one. All of a sudden, the book is setting up this understanding of Jew and Gentile. And the Jews were blessed in Jesus for centuries before Gentiles ever were. But then Jesus came into the world and brought salvation to the ends of the earth. And Gentiles were brought in so much so that Peter goes, holy cow, I can't believe he's saving even those Gentiles. And then Paul goes, and now because of Jesus, you have been given the same blessings we have. Now I'd like you to look at the theme. And I think the theme, my understanding of the theme of Ephesians is chapter 3, verse 6. And after the development of his argument in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden, you understand the pronoun change in the 
first paragraph that you probably have read in the past and never noticed that the thematic pronoun change. But what Paul is saying is simply this. Gentiles have an equal standing with God because of Jesus, because of God's Son. And you can never say that any class of people is unclean or doesn't have an equal standing. But Gentiles are members together with Israel in Christ. You know, there was a time in our country when we didn't feel that way about all people. There were people of other colors that we looked at and we said, God can't love them like he loves me. I am white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I was raised in that environment. Watch the movie Mississippi Burning and you will see the environment in which my generation was raised. And 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote, don't be so stupid. Gentiles who have Jesus have an equal standing with God. And the church of Jesus Christ in 1950 did not believe it. We taught it. We hated blacks. I was raised in that environment. Thankfully, it's changing in our culture. But prejudice reigns in America. And don't think it doesn't. How many black people go to your churches? When have you ever set foot in a black church? Isn't that sad? I was listening to a sports uh, guy playing basketball. He was talking about his history, and he said, I never shook the hand of a white person until I was in college. In our, in our day, in the world in which you live, prejudice reigns in America. In Christianity, even though Paul wrote this lesson in Ephesians, read it and take it to heart and live it and to honor Jesus. Thank you so much for your attention.